Uh, Won't you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 58, if you have a Bible with you. We'll put the words up uh, on the projector a bit later as well. So we've been working our way through the book of Isaiah, and last week we had a look at Isaiah 55, which was an invitation to a feast. Uh, God says, come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Well, now in Isaiah 58, uh, God's people seem to be taking God up on his invitation. They seem to be seeking after him. They seem so serious about this that, in fact, they've left their feasting and they are now having a time of fasting, a special time set aside specifically for the purpose of seeking after God perhaps a spiritual retreat or a week of prayer. And yet something isn't right. Let's have a look from verse 1 of Isaiah 58. This is God speaking to Isaiah. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. 
You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And this is then God's word. I want to look at this chapter from a slightly different angle this morning, so hold on tight. As I said, at the beginning of this chapter, God's people appear to be taking him at his word and seeking after him. In Isaiah 55, God says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. And their search for God appears very sincere and very earnest. Uh, if you have a look at the first few verses again, uh, we see that these people seem to be doing the right things. They're seeking God. In fact, God says they do so day by day. I guess in our terms, it would be like having a daily quiet time. Not only are they eager to know God's ways, uh, probably the equivalent of a, of a Bible study, and, and added to that, they ask God for just decisions. They seem interested in getting his good, pleasing, and perfect will. They seem eager for God to come near to them, a little bit like a worship service inviting God to come near. And when all of these things don't work, they get very frustrated and very worried. So there are a lot of good things going on here, a lot of religious activity. Uh, if this were a description of a local church, we'd probably be quite impressed. But something is wrong. God doesn't say to Isaiah, shout aloud, raise your voice, and declare my people's righteousness. He says to Isaiah, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. Whatever it is that God's people are doing here clearly isn't working. What is the problem? Well, I think fundamentally the problem has to do with a little phrase that is used in verse 8, where God says, then your righteousness will go before you. Their righteousness isn't going before them at the moment. The problem is misplaced righteousness. So what is righteousness? We've heard a lot about it uh, this morning. Righteousness is, is a sense of well-being that we are acceptable to ourselves, that we are acceptable to others, and in some sense that we are acceptable to God. And all human beings actually have a system of righteousness. I've told you the story before of a man who arrived at the pearly gates, and St. Peter was there with his book, and uh, St. Peter opened the book and went through it and said, I, I don't actually see your name here. But tell me, have you done anything good? 
And the man replied, well, yes, once I came across a group of bikers who were teasing a young woman, and I went up to their leader, I smacked him on the head, I pushed over his bike, I pulled out his nose ring, and I said, you leave her alone, punk, or you'll answer to me. St. Peter was impressed, and he asked, when did this happen? And the man replied, about three minutes ago. We all think that there are some things that make us acceptable to God. Some people say, I don't believe anything. I, I'm not into religion. I'm not into belief. Uh, I think that you just have to live a good life. That's a belief. <laughs> it's a belief in your own righteousness. Everyone has a, a sense of righteousness and what it takes to be right with God. And we can either have an official system and join others, uh, like Buddhism or Islam or Sikhism, or we can simply have a personal set of standards that we think makes us right with God. But the problem with all of these systems is that they produce one of two things. Either they produce guilt because we think that we're never reaching up to what we should be doing. We, we know that we fall short and fe we feel guilty or they produce pride because we do live up to these standards and we look down on other people who aren't meeting our standards. Those systems produce guilt or pride, but they don't make us right with God. And I think it's important to recognize that when we become Christians, when we come to Jesus, that mindset doesn't automatically change. Often when we become Christians, we think to ourselves, well, now I'll really be good because I'm doing all of these good things like Bible reading and going to church and giving away money and going to Bible study, it's possible that our religious activities simply become another system of righteousness. And that was the problem for these people. They believed that their religious actions were their righteousness, what made them right with God. It's so interesting then that a little later in the book of Isaiah, chapter 64, God's people say, all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. The Bible doesn't say that our sins are like filthy rags. The Bible says that our righteous acts, the things we trust in to make us right with God, even good things like reading the Bible and prayer, in terms of them making us right with God, those things are like filthy rags. So what is the solution? Should we just get rid of religion, as John Lennon suggested in his song, Imagine, imagine no religion, imagine all the people living life in peace. Is that the solution? Well, I don't think so. You see, part of God's solution to the problem includes an act of worship. I wonder if you noticed it. It's there towards the end of this passage. God says, if you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you'll find your joy in the Lord. So this is a, a religious act. 
The Sabbath day was actually very interesting, and maybe we should spend some time, some time, having a look at the whole topic of Sabbath. But in brief, the Sabbath day was one day a week where you stopped doing all work, and you spent time with God. And that has a couple of consequences when it's done correctly. Firstly, for one day a week, men and women stopped defining themselves by their occupation. That so often happens, doesn't it? People define themselves by what they do. So the second question that anyone will ask you after they've asked you what is your name is, so what is it that you do? And we put people on a certain sort of ladder according to what they do. Tell us what you do and we'll know how to handle you. I went through a period in my life where I was unemployed for four years, and it was an incredible, incredibly difficult time for me, because if I wasn't a pastor, then who was I as a person? And particularly for men, we define ourselves in terms of what we do, our work. And the Sabbath day was one day a week where you stopped doing that. And the second consequence of the Sabbath was that for one day a week, men and women stopped defining their lives by what they produced or what they purchased. And that's the second way that we often define our lives by what we have. So if we have a particular make of car or a particular brand of clothing or a particular size of house, then we feel good about ourselves. So on the Sabbath day, we weren't defined by who we were in terms of our work. We weren't defined as who we are in terms of our possessions. How then did people define themselves that one day of the week? Well, look at the last part of that verse again. If you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord. In other words, for one day a week, people found their identity where it really was supposed to be, in God. I am his beloved son. I am his beloved daughter. I have the righteousness that God gives me. And as I said this morning, we we have that in uh, spades more than the Old Testament people did because we have our Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And we've looked at it during our communion service. I'm not made right with God by anything that I do. I could spend my entire life devoted to God, and I'd only be giving him back what was his already. I'm not made right with God through my righteous acts. I'm made right with him through the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. His righteousness applies to me. And so the solution to the Israelites' problems isn't to get rid of religion, but rather to cultivate, to cultivate rather this genuine relationship where we know and we understand and experience this love. And so there's a paradox in these verses. We're, we're, we're to reject religion and pursue God, but the pursuit of God often involves religious practices like Sabbath day and reading God's word and spending time with him. That's why religion is dangerous, because it can look like the genuine article without being the genuine article. So how do I know if I do have a genuine article? How do I know if I'm really delighting in the Lord or simply stroking my own ego through religious practices? 
How do I know if my joy really is in God? Well, when we genuinely love God, then we love the things and the people that God loves. And that's what these other verses address. I think it's really important to see that the things God mentions in this chapter aren't a route to salvation, but rather they're the fruit of salvation. Uh, it's, it's, it's very important. God isn't saying stop fasting, stop worshiping, stop reading your Bible, stop praying, start feeding the hungry, start providing homes for the homeless, start breaking oppression, uh, start clothing the naked, and then you'll be right with me. That would be to replace one set of righteousness with another set of righteousness. Uh, instead of feeling good because I'm fasting, I now feel good because I feed the hungry. No, no, we seek after God, and once we understand who we are in God, once we recognize that we are more wicked than we ever believed, but at the same time more loved and accepted than we ever hoped, then these things will naturally begin to come out in our daily lives. So let's have a look at some of the characteristics of people who genuinely know and love God. We don't have time to look at them in detail. We, we can only list them. But when we truly know God, we, we treat people with justice and dignity. Verse 3, it's mentioned negatively. On the day of your fasting, you do as you please. You exploit all your workers. Um, you get them to work instead of you. You're taking the Sabbath off and you get somebody else to, to keep your fields going. Verse 6, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to, to loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, break every yoke? Loving God translates into how I treat those who work for me, those who work in my garden, those who work in my home. Secondly, when we truly know God, we, we seek shalom, we seek peace, we we seek harmony. We seek well-being. Again, the opposite is mentioned in verse 4. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. In verse 9, God tells his people to do away with the pointing finger and malicious talk. I love that pointing finger. You often see it in grade 1s and grade 2s. Sometimes you see it in adults as well. But, but it's not just our, our actions, it's, it's our very speech that, that's changed. Those who know God will feed the hungry. Verse 7, is it not to share your food with the hungry? Uh, those who love God will house the homeless. Uh, verse 7, and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. They'll clothe the naked. Verse 7, when you see the naked to clothe them. They'll have compassion towards others and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. And finally, those who know God spend themselves. Have a look at verse 10. If you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed. And, and this is where we see that we're dealing with a heart that, that's changed by God. It's one thing to give money to the poor. It's quite another to give yourself to the poor. Uh, this is the real evidence of people who know and love God. They're not just giving charity, they're giving of their selves. So, so these things are, are a barometer 
they're a measure of my relationship with God. Do I really know and love God? Then these characteristics will be more and more evident in my life. Uh, why? Well, because these things are important to God. Uh, remember how God is described in the Old Testament. Psalm 68, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. Deuteronomy 10, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Now, these people are God's priority. All the way through the Old Testament, there's this uh, trinity of the, 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 the widow, the fatherless, the immigrant that God has passion for. And if I know and love God, then I'm going to begin to share his heart. I think it was the, um, the founder of World Vision who prayed that simple prayer, Lord, break my heart with the things that break your heart. When we know and love God, our heart begins to, to be in tune with his. In the New Testament, the Apostle John says, whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. So again, it's not loving the poor that brings me closer to God. I draw close to God and the evidence that I know and love God is seen in genuine love and care and compassion. I think there's another aspect to this too. How, how do I know if I genuinely love Jesus, if I have a relationship with Jesus? Well, let's think about Jesus for a moment. You know, when, he, when he came to earth, he didn't come to a palace or a mansion. He was born in a stable, uh, laid in a feeding trough. When his parents, Mary and Joseph, present him at the temple, we read that the sacrifice they offer is two young pigeons. That was the sacrifice of poor people. If you couldn't afford a lamb, you could give two pigeons that you could catch anywhere. Mary and Joseph were poor. During Jesus' three years of ministry, he, he didn't have any property. Uh, he said, foxes have dens and birds have met their nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. On the day he was crucified, the Roman soldiers gambled for the only piece of property he owned, which was his cloak. And when he died, he was placed in a borrowed tomb. The Apostle Paul writes and he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He was poor, he was from an oppressed and despised race. And so it's interesting, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story, and he says that on the day of judgment, uh, everyone is going to be brought before him. Some will stand on his right, and some will stand on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And these people are going to say, when did we do that? 
The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Because I was hungry. I was thirsty. If I've really come to know Jesus, then in the words of Mother Teresa, I will go through life and recognize Jesus in all his distressing disguises. He's disguised as the guy who lives under the bridge. He's disguised as the person uh, with uh, mental challenges. And I'll naturally want to do something about the suffering of others. So God is looking for a genuine relationship. He, He wants a friendship with us where I find my identity in Him. And that then is seen in changed attitudes and actions towards the weakest of his children. I I guess it goes both ways. I guess that joining a program to help feed the hungry can bring compassion, which can lead me to God. It it kind of works uh, both ways. Uh, But underneath everything, I think think we come to it indirectly. I, I, I learn to love Jesus. I love him more and more. And that then changes me. Whereas sometimes I think I try and change myself and try and change this action uh, without spending a genuine relationship with God. These things flow out of a relationship with Him. And what are the results of living in this way? Our time is almost gone, so let's just list these again. But there's some wonderful promises here. Firstly, God says, "My, my darkness will become light. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Secondly, if out of genuine love for God we serve others, we ourselves experience healing and restoration. Your healing will quickly appear. He will strengthen your frame. Verse 12 Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You'll be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. Thirdly, if, if out of genuine love for God we serve others, we experience his presence. Verse 8, then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Verse 9, then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. We began this passage by looking at God not answering the Israelites. But here, as soon as we call on him, we find him to be there. We experience God's guidance in verse 11. The Lord will guide you always. There's God's provision, uh, verse 11. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land. And then number six, if if out of genuine love for God we serve others, God will make us a well-watered garden. Second part of verse 11. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. It's such a wonderful verse. It's, It's speaking about the fact that the refreshing that we give to others, we receive for ourselves. And in fact, that the refreshing we receive from a relationship with God flows out naturally to others. It reminds me of Psalm 1, 
where the psalmist describes the righteous person and says, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf doesn't wither. Whatever they do prospers. Or John chapter 7, where Jesus promises, whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, streams of living water will flow from within them. Again, there's that picture of I spend time with Jesus, and out of that, believing in him, this water gushes out towards others. And then finally, that leads to joy and feasting. Verse 14, Then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. These people have been having a time of fasting, and God says, I've got this, I've got this feast for you. In other words, I think to sum up, in this passage, God offers us life, life in all its fullness, a life of purpose and meaning as I know and grow up into him, and a life of purpose and meaning then as it naturally flows out to others.